today we are going to um, talk about a topic that is very dear to me, and, and the reason why is because it, it, it reminds me of something that I went through when I was growing up. You see, um, when I went to Puerto Rico, some of you, if I have had a chance to visit you at your home or visit with you at a restaurant or elsewhere, you've heard this story, but I grew up in Puerto Rico, and my biological side of the family, my father's side of the family, I uh, grew up Catholic. I was baptized as an infant, grew up in the Catholic Church. When I was about three and a half, my mom married my stepdad, who was an Adventist, and I have a large family, biological father's side, 20 aunts and uncles, in my stepdad's side, 15, and in my mom's side, 10. I have just aunts and uncles and cousins just everywhere. And so growing up, you know, I'm in the church. I get involved with, with pathfinders and adventurers and doing these things. And, and I realized my, 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 my dad's side of the family is heavy Catholic. Another, I answer uncles are like Baptist and Pentecostal and all these different religions and Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, early on, 9, 10, 11 years old, I'm saying, what in the world? And so I asked my parents permission, hey, can I go with auntie to church? And can I go with uncle and cousin so-and-so? And as I journeyed with them and I went to the different churches, something happened. I, I, now, I didn't literally do this, but picture having a Bible. And you show up and you go to one church and it says, well, we kind of don't listen to this part. We listen to the other one. And I ripped those pieces out that they don't listen to. And then I went to another section. And yeah, not the old, really just the new. No, not the new, really just the old. Actually, that book is great. But here we have a whole other book that we actually look into instead. And so imagine how that is for a kid suddenly seeing all these arguments about what pieces are good, what pieces are not. Some of them went as far as saying, well, here's the Gospels, or here's the book of Acts, or the book of Hebrews, and these two or three chapters, A-okay. This one, skip it. Let's jump to this one. That is good. And this one, and it's like, how do you do that? You know? And, and then you'll take some verses, like there's a verse in the Bible that talks about tattoos, and they say, no, tattoos is evil, don't do that. But the two verses before that, it says about rounding off the edges of your hair and your starburst. Oh yeah, we don't listen to that one. But definitely don't put tattoos on. Now I'm not giving you permission to go and put on tattoos. What I'm saying is that we get in trouble. When we start picking and choosing which Bible verses we apply, what sections of scriptures, but then there's a whole question altogether of the validity of the scriptures. What do they mean? Are they good? Are they worth it? Because then you got TV shows like Lucifer. Yes, there's a whole TV show but like Lucifer. TV shows like Supernatural that make fun of the Bible and how the Bible tells you the story is not really how it happened. Movies like uh, 2012 that came back some years ago, Probably around 2012, actually. No, actually came 2010. But anyways, um, where suddenly Michael comes down to fight against God in heaven because he's the bad one and he wants to smite humanity. So Michael comes down and we got to fight against God. There's all these things, Da Vinci Code, you know, twisting all of the stuff about scriptures and how it got compiled. How in the world do you know? And so as I study and as I looked a little bit older, not as a... 10-year-old kid, you know, I came across terms that are like, you know, sola fide, 
Faith alone. That's all that matters. Sola gratia. Meaning grace alone. And then you have sola scriptura. Only the scriptures. And then you have one that says sacra scriptura. Meaning holy scriptures. There's also tota scriptura. Meaning total scriptures. And all those different things. But when I came across all of these terms. I really love that expression of the scriptures. Of being sacra. Where we get the word sacred from. Being holy. And so that's what we're going to discuss today. This thing of the holy scriptures. But before we do that, as always, we dare not go into the scriptures or talk about any matters of God without calling upon the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us go ahead and, and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I come before you now. And I ask, Father, that you, first of all, be with me as an individual. Lord, you know there's nothing here that I bring, but I can only cling to the blood of the cross on Calvary. And I ask for a two-part request for me, Father God. Number one, I ask that it be you speaking and not I. I also ask that you be with my voice that's still, you know, wearing down a little bit with this sickness that I'm trying to get over, that I've been fighting all week. So, Lord, please, you know, provide a brother with some strength. But I also ask that you be with my church members here and my family members that are here, as we look at the scriptures, that you prepare our hearts and our minds. We ask these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let everyone here say, Amen. So, with the scriptures, there's a couple of things, you know, let me, let me tell you this. First of all, um, when we looked at the scriptures in seminary, I actually took like semesters, 16 weeks long, to study all of these things. And, you know, I have to tell you, it gets pretty complicated at some points, because you look at how the, 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 the canon Bible, which is the 66 books that you're holding onto, came about. How was it that it was compiled together? How was it that it was gathered, rather, and put into one place? Because you see, early on in the Bible, it used to be scrolls. There used to be oral tradition. There were scrolls. There were places that were pieced together. You remember reading stories from the Bible, how suddenly they were cleaning up the temple, and they found the law, and the, the, the king is like... <gasps> We've been doing some wrong stuff. Look at what it says here. So so it used to be in scrolls. And so what it was decided is let's gather this stuff together. Let's put it together. Let's have it into one place. And then if you study this, which I'm not going into detail here, you get into, they start getting into like letters, meaning, you know, like there's something about Q and Mark and something about M and L and elemental P and, you know, sometimes Y or something like that. You got onto all these things about how the scrolls were compiled and how was it that they were pieced together but one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is that and this is part of part of part of the thing with history is that many people think is that a group of people sat in a council somewhere and started deciding what was biblical and what was not biblical, what belonged and what didn't belong and it wasn't quite like that understand that for many years for many years, we knew what the scriptures were. We just wanted to put them together into one place. This is in our history. Now, were a couple of books here and there tried to be slipped in? You know, absolutely. But we knew at the time, we can't authenticate this. There was something like a, a gospel of Enoch or something like that. That came over like, that's, how's that going to show up like 1500 years after Enoch? And you're trying to tell me that this is genuine. 
you know, and then there was some other bizarre stuff. Like, let's say, you know, we were talking in the children's story about describing Kevin. So imagine that you have six people get up here and describe Joey, you know, short, stubby, bullheaded, you know, that kind of thing. And then the one person says tall, dark, and handsome. You're going to know clearly that that person is definitely not giving you the right description of Joey. All the other ones agree, and this one was way off. So there were some things like that. That being said, is all I'm saying about, about that. I will tell you that prayerfully, when they gathered the books already that they knew were from, you know, were genuine and were, and were scriptural, when they gathered all of the scrolls and put them together, from there, we had them in this original language. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. What happens now is that at some point it began to become translated. Some, some stuff like the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek. Some stu- sometimes the whole Bible was translated into Latin and, and so forth. And you have some things like that. But then you have when it was translated into English. And we get caught up in what about these translations and, you know, is it right or is it not? Because if you ask any Protestant, doesn't have to be an Adventist, we say King James all the way, baby. This is it. This is like God himself came down and translated it. Without thou shalt giveth awayeth, you know, Englisheth that you findeth on there. And, and so... You look at all of these translations and things, and, and you see, this is the problem with translations in general. Let me tell you a little bit about translations. First of all, it's hard to translate because in the Greek and the Hebrew, we get cheated versus English. Sometimes, sometimes, you got more words in English than you do in Hebrew or Greek. For example, in Greek, eroneos means heaven. But it could also mean you have sky, space, and heaven. Euroneos, euroneos, euroneos. One word. However, in English we have law and al, which means no in Hebrew. But in English we only have one word. Yet in Hebrew there's like two or three. And you have that where in English it's just no, no, no. And you see the variances there. Then you have words like ruach. Which in it's it's it we hear it in English as spirit or soul, uh, but it could also mean wind or breath or mind. We also have the same thing in Greek, which is pneuma, which could also be wind, breath, air, spirit, or soul as well. So these are things that you see the word there in the Greek or the Hebrew. Which one of those do I pick to put it in English? Am I trying to trick you? Am I trying to cheat you and do something bad about the translation? Not at all. It's just that it has four or five meanings and prayerfully we look to see which one seems to be the one that it is indicating here. That's how translations typically work. In addition to that, as the understanding of our languages increases, we have a better understanding of what was meant in the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. For instance, when the King James Bible was written, they only had about, let me see, I wrote the amount here. It was, it was a small amount. It was like 20 or 30 scrolls that they have found. And so when they did translations like the NIV, the New Living Translation, New American Standard, now you are in the hundreds rather than in just the 20s and 30s. So getting more scrolls 
give us the opportunity to get a better understanding of the language and what was being said. Let me give you an example. Does anybody here have a King James Bible? Anybody? Okay, Brother Alistair, can you read for me? And you guys can go there in your Bibles. Numbers chapter 23, verse 22. Numbers chapter 23, verse 22. Can I ask you to come up here and read it, man? That way you say my voice a little bit and you get to read it from your version. Numbers 23, verse 22. Numbers 23 and verse 22 says, God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Of a what? Unicorn. Of a what? A unicorn. All right. Thank you. Go ahead and have a seat, dear sir. The strength of a unicorn. How do you have the strength of an animal that did not exist? A fake animal. You see that same thing in Deuteronomy 33, Job 39, Psalms 22, Psalms 29, Psalms 92, Isaiah 34. The reason why the, the word there is rehem, which means a wild ox. But when the King James Version was translated, we didn't know what that word meant, so we went with unicorn. Now, does that take away from the validity of the Bible? No. In the translation, we didn't know enough, so we did that. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this is still Sacra Escriptura, that this is still Holy Scripture. It's just this translation. There was a couple of things that weren't too clear at the time. We have learned so much more since, and therefore there's a bit more clarity. Now, if you read it in the original language, it's always been clear. It was just in the language barrier, a slight translation piece. Now, does it take away from the theme of the scriptures with what we have in the King James Bible? It doesn't take away from it at all, does it? But this is just to show you a little bit, a slight variance, a slight misunderstanding here because of the word Rehem, which they have no idea exactly what it meant at the time, but it does not take away from the validity of the scriptures. In the New King James Version, now that they came out some years later, they actually corrected that in there. You'll notice something else too with translations. You have, for example, in, in, in Aramaic, the horrible. The problem is that back in the day, awesome and terrible, there was not much of a difference. You get stricken with awe, like <gasps> awesome. But we made it so cool now that when we see the image, we don't know if it's awesome or if it's terrible. Therefore, you know, even in our modern English, it has shifted as well. Even though still English to English, we, there's the variance now between what awesome and terrible is and having awe and being something that is kind of cool. And awesome. We see that there. And this is what has happened with the scriptures uh, throughout with the different translations. And so here is the key with this. Number one, get yourself a solid Bible translation. Number two, a solid Bible translation which you can understand clearly. If you aren't able to handle, like for me, in, in you know English to the second language kind of student, the King James was a little bit rough for me just in English, period, because it's an older, different type of English. So I struggle with that. Make sure it's an English that you can understand. Or Spanish. I still study my Bible in Spanish from time to time because it's a little bit easier for me. Also, if you get to a Bible passage 
that you're having difficulty understanding, look at other Bible versions to see with the word ruhach or numa, did they choose mind, spirit, soul, breath, air? What was it that they choose to put? Excuse me, to put there to get a clear understanding. It doesn't mean that one translation is worse than the other or better than the other. It's just that it is going from one language to another. And some things don't exist in our language. Some things have more than one meaning. And the translator prayerfully had to put in there what was the word there. So look at a couple other translations to understand too. If not, do some study in the original language to see. For example, for example, in Exodus, in Exodus um, chapter, let me see here, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10. In the King James Bible, it says, remember the Sabbath day because the Sabbath day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Right? The Sabbath day is the Sabbath. In the NIV, it says that the Sabbath day is Ah, Sabbath. And some people are saying, see, NIV, ooh, evil Bible, because it is no longer saying that it is the Sabbath, but it is a Sabbath. The thing is that in Hebrew, the or ah doesn't exist. There's no definite article in there. It's not ha Shabbat. It's the seventh day is Shabbat. Not a Sabbath or the Sabbath. It's just Sabbath. Just like I'm Joey, I'm not the Joey or a Joey, I'm just Joey. And so when it was translated into English, one translation went with seventh day is the Sabbath, even though the is not there. And another one says seventh day is, is a Sabbath, but pretty much the seventh day is Sabbath. Plain and simple. No what ifs or buts about it. And some people are saying, yeah, but I understand all of that. But there's still some stuff missing. There's some Bible verses that, you know, are completely missing from the scriptures. And it's not that. If you read carefully, when you find scrolls, some are really old. Some you find them a little bit more recent. When you find scrolls, some scrolls, because remember, everything was manually written. Sometimes a verse or two were not there. And so depending on the Bible translation, we'll say something like earlier scrolls don't include this, but we did. Other Bible versions will say um, verse 15 is missing because earlier scrolls don't have it. But here's what it says on the bottom in the footnotes. And they will let you know that it's missing. For example, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, it says on there that here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some scrolls don't say the son of God. It just simply says, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then it moves on to verse 2. It doesn't have that extra add-on of the Son of God. Some haven't, some do not. Does it take away from the message that the scriptures is bringing? Yes or no? It doesn't take away from it at all. It was handwritten. I mean, I type emails and text messages. When I go back, I skip like 50 words sometimes. Because, you know, I have to go back and try to fix them and put them in there. So it is understandably so. But it doesn't take away from the validity. And they say, yes, but we don't have all of the books. That is very true. That is very true. Go to Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Colossians 4, verse 16. When you have it, say, Amen. Colossians 4, 16, when you have it, say amen.
Colossians 4:16 says, Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Do we have any books in the Bible named Laodicea? We have Corinthians and we have Thessalonians. Do we have? So we recognize that some books are missing. We recognize that when we did the gathering, we weren't able to find them all. But it doesn't take away from the fact that it is still Sacra Escriptura. 1 Corinthians 5.9 says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Verse 10 says, yet I certainly did not mean, and it goes from there. Verse 11 says, but now I have written to you. Which means that 1 Corinthians is at least 2 Corinthians. Because it seems to indicate that there was another book or another letter written to them before that. There is evidence, even within the Bible, that not all of the books are there. But it doesn't take away from that. One of the coolest things, too, people can deny the inspiration of Scripture. But they cannot deny its age. In um, 19, well, I have the year here, 1947, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Are you guys familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Do you know what happened? Little shepherd boy is going in there trying to find a sheep, throws a rock in a cave, hears something breaking, they found the scrolls. They found every book in the Old Testament except the book of Esther. And when they went there, they were able to realize, wow, look at this here, nice and preserved. It's nice and old. No one cannot deny its age. And that's very important to what we're saying about Sacra Scriptura because the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us, and when we are wrong, it teaches to, to us to do what is right. 2 Peter 1, 21, 22-21 says, Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here you have the Scripture saying clearly that they're inspired, that they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but that could just be all lies. But Jesus himself trusted in the Scriptures. Go with me. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. So you see how Jesus responded to the scriptures. And if you've been coming to the Revelation series, you heard this on the first night when we talked about this. Matthew chapter 4. And we'll read it on verse 4. This is when Jesus was being tempted. He was tempted first time. Look what it says in Matthew 4, 4. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say... No, because it is written, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Look at verse 7, tempted again. And Jesus responded, the scriptures say, no, it is written, you must not t test the Lord your God. Uh, Matthew 4.10, again, tempted again. And he says, get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, for it is written, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. John 17.17 17 says, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Your word is truth. Go with me to Isaiah 45, beginning on verse 1. And when you have it, say, Amen. Because you see, you could deny the inspiration of Scripture. You could deny whether or not it is of God. 
But you cannot deny it is age. You cannot deny that it is really old. And when you find things on there that predict the certain things, you got to say, whoa. Even though, you know, we, we put a unicorn on there instead of a wild ox. And even though some scrolls say the Son of God versus not the Son of God in, in Mark 1.1. 1, 1, but look at this. It said this was going to happen, and it happened exactly like it. And if you've been coming to the Revelation series, you see we've been doing that every single night. Every single night. But here's an example. Isaiah 45, verse 1. This is what the Lord says to Cyrus, his anointed one, whose right hand he will empower. Before him, mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear. Their fortress gates will be open, never to shut again. Look at verse 3. And I will give you treasures hidden in the darkness, secret riches. And I will do this so, you will may, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. And so here you have something very interesting. Cyrus' name in Isaiah was predicted to be the one to capture Babylon over a 100 years before Cyrus captured Babylon. How will you feel if you see your name written in a book with a prediction over a 100 years ago? And it is there. Here's something else too. Now there's a whole bunch of examples that I can give you. I picked and choose just limited text for today's purposes so that I'm not here forever. Remember, we spend semesters studying this. I'm not going to squeeze even 16 weeks into, uh, you know, just the divine worship hour. But that being said, go with me to Isaiah 13, 19 through 20. Isaiah 13, 19 through 20. And when you have it, say amen. Isaiah 13, 19 through 20. Isaiah 13, 19 through 20 says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20, It will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation. Nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. Babylon will never be inhabited again. Until this day, Babylon still not inhabited. If I were an atheist, I would say, let's go out there and let's put your tent there. Let's go ahead and, and build a house so that we can say, ha, there you go, scriptures, in your face. There you go, God, in your face. But no, many have tried, but it hasn't happened because God said that it would never, ever be inhabited again. And there's a whole lot of more biblical examples. Again, I'm not giving you all of that, but I'll share some things also about the scriptures that they share with us about the wisdom. Remember his age, and look what it says. Job 26.7, God stretches the northern sky over empty space and hang the earth on nothing. Years before scientists recognized how the earth was, the Bible said that. Isaiah 40.22, God sits above the circle of the earth, above the roundness of the earth, above the sphere of the earth. This was Isaiah, some 1,500, 2,000, 3, I don't know, a whole bunch of years ago. But yet... A little bit over 500 years ago, 1492 or something like that, wasn't Christopher Columbus having an argument about whether the world was flat or round or flat or round and you go off the edge and you fall off? If he read the Bible, he would have known that it was round because we've seen that in the scriptures. 
Job 28:25 to establish a way for the wind and a portion that waters by measure before we knew that the wind and air had weight. The scripture said it. Colossians 1:17. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. This is cool when it comes to the atom. Scientists says that everything about the atom says that it should fall apart. They have no idea why it holds together because in him everything consists. Even though science says it doesn't make sense, it is very true because he holds it all together. That's how my God works. Deuteronomy 23 verses 12 through 13. It says you must have a designated area outside the camp where you can go to relieve yourself. If you don't know what that means, see me after church. Verse 13, each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with a spade and cover the excrement. If you don't know what that is, well, check with your English teacher. Um, you know, you have it there, this council. If the people from the Oregon Trail would have read their scriptures, many of them would have survived. Rather than bathing with the animals and going potty in the water and drinking the water all together. Again, simply from the fruits that come out of the scriptures. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8. And when you have it, say amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 8. First Corinthians 10, 8 says, And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Let me tell you this. This is probably one of the biggest lessons that I wish we could have learned from scriptures. I told you before that years ago I worked for the Red Cross and one of the things that I used to teach also was HIV AIDS education. I mean, think about it. Imagine that I get a disease but I am faithful to my wife, stays with her and I only. But if I don't keep myself pure, it will spread all over. And here you have a biblical counsel even about sexual immorality and sexual purity and this concept of monogamy right there in the scriptures. Go with me to Proverbs 23, verse 29. When you have it, say amen. Proverbs 23. Verse 29. Proverbs 23, beginning on 29, we'll read 29 to 32. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Verse 30. It is the one who spent long hours in taverns, trying out new drinks. Verse 31. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. Verse 32. For in the end, it bites like a poisonous snake, and it stings like a viper. Here you have the scriptural wisdom. Do you know how many lives will be saved by sober driving alone? Do you know how many wise business decisions will take place without alcohol in the room? Do you imagine how many families would not be broken because of this strong drink? 
the scriptures give us this counsel. It talks about it very, very clearly, but we don't heed the Sacra Escriptura. We don't heed this holy, sacred scriptures. You know, the scriptures answer a lot of questions like where we came from, where are we now, and where are we headed. It is a wonderful thing. But I would probably say that one of the greatest testimonies on behalf of the validity of the scriptures is the fact that transformation happens. I have read many books in my life, and this is the only one that has changed my life forever. When people read the scriptures, lives are changed. I have seen in Camden, New, Jer New Jersey, drug dealers, I mean gangster kind of people, turn into the biggest puppies ever. Just biggest babies. Look at you. You're so cute. You know, back in the day when you were just like afraid of them because of who they were. But the word of God transformed. And that's something that no other book can say it does. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ or anyone that is in Christ has become a new person, a new creature. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Not only that, but the scriptures give us wisdom and knowledge. Psalm 119.100, I am even wiser than my elders, for I have kept your commandments. Psalm 119.98, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Isaiah 55.9, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the scriptures we see, if we learn and we read and we study, there's wisdom that comes out of that. I shared with you before that it is wise to learn from our mistakes, but it is wiser to learn from the mistakes of others. It's also wiser to heed the word of God. Wisdom comes from him. We also get guidance. Psalm 119, verse 105. You guys know it, right? Your word is a lamp to guide my feet. And a light for my path. Go with me to John 15. John 15, 11. John 15, 11. And when you have it, say amen. John 15, 11 says, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, that your joy will overflow, that yes, that your joy may be full. This is perhaps one of the saddest things. I do some counseling via FaceTime, and I have this, this one of my old pathfinders that I'm counseling. Uh, she lives in another state, and it breaks my heart because a long time ago she left the church. She wants nothing to do with God. She wants nothing to do with, with anything that has to do with God or Christ, period. And her life is full of just heartache, misery, brokenness. And she seems to think that if I get this job, now I got it. If I get this degree, now I got it. If this man gives me the time of day, now I got it. She seems to think that happiness will fill that void in her heart. But at the end of the day, there's nothing out there that can fill the void in your heart, then you allowing Christ to enter your heart. If you truly do that, your joy will be full. If you find yourself extremely all over the place when it comes to emotions, often angry, often sad, often enraged with whatever it may be, envious or broken in some way, consider this, have you really allowed Christ in your life? Because the scripture tells us that if you let him in, your joy will 
be full. It doesn't mean that your circumstances will be happy and that your circumstances will be great. It means that even when you're going through crazy things, you're still going to be filled with his joy, even in the outlook of nasty things. And I mentioned to you that before, in the midst of the furnace or through the lion's den or through the flood, he will still be there and you will just look up and smile because your joy will be full. Matthew 15, 16 says that in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. If you let God in your heart, your ways, your good ways will shine out. And go with me to John 14, 3. John 14, 3. Last verse for today. When you have it, say amen. It says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. The scriptures cover a wealth of knowledge. Where we came from, what are we supposed to do while we're here, and where we're headed. My God tells us that he's coming soon to take us home. He's promising to do that, and we find some wonderful things in the scriptures about him. Children's story this morning talk about how is it that we get to know Jesus. Well, spend some time with him. Spend time with him daily, and this is very important. The enemy will use many tricks to try to get us to doubt, whether Christ himself or his word. That's how the devil did it at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, did he indeed say that you couldn't eat of this stuff? Did he really say that you were going to die? He have us doubt. But I have to tell you, if you're doubting, take it to God. Lord, help my unbelief. If you're doubted, take it to him. He will show you plenty of evidence that you can rely on the Holy Scriptures. This is my prayer to you. I wrestle with it, and there's nothing that will have me shaken. And I pray for you that this help. Now, I got 16 weeks worth of material. I just share some bits and pieces here and there, just the highlights or the cliff notes version. I'll be more than happy to share more with you, but I will also encourage you to search for yourself because there's importance in the scriptures and we must trust in them and rely on them because towards the end times, the devil, according to the scriptures, will try to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. So it is crucial that we are grounded in what we believe, which is the Sacra Scriptura. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, you know, this message is a very simple message. And for believers, sometimes we could take it for granted. Yeah, we got it. It's all right. But Lord, it is so important for the times that we're living in. And so we ask, Father God, that you continue to manifest your glory and your power. That as the world tried to tear down the scriptures, as the world tried to tear down whether or not there even is a God, that we ourselves can be grounded in what we believe, so that in the face of temptations and in the face of trials, we can fully lean on you. Bless us and keep us now, it is my prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let everyone here say, Amen.